kick this off in this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Melanie Brensinger, co-founder and managing partner of Anagenesis Capital. Melanie, can you please give a high level of your background and then we're going to rewind and tell your backstory. All right, over to you. Sure. Good afternoon, Jordan. So uh, I am the co-founder of a private credit fund focused in on the healthcare space called Anagenesis Capital Partners. And we are on our first fund. We raised $274 million and we have nine portfolio companies. All right. Let's rewind because there is a lot to unpackage. First off, I don't know where you're actually from. So I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Some would say it's Amish country, but um, it's a small town between Harrisburg, uh, Philadelphia, Lancaster, Allentown, if anyone knows any of those areas, but super small town, uh, essentially in the middle of nowhere of Pennsylvania. And so after Amish country, what was the next step in life? <laughs> so, um, so I grew up in a small town with really hardworking parents, entrepreneurial parents, uh, and one brother. And... Um, when I was trying to figure out where to go to school, I didn't really have any direction around that. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a social studies secondary ed teacher. And then I went to a classroom at one point and thought um, I might commit murder if I had to deal with uh, ninth graders all day. <laughs> as much as I learned social studies, love social studies, I realized teaching might not be my forte. And then I got um, a part-time job. I had worked since I was essentially like 14 years old and in different restaurants and whatnot. But um, I got a job as a bank teller and um, I loved what I was doing on the banking side. And um, that's really what got me interested in finance. And um, my first year of schooling, I went to East Stroudsburg University. And Let, then- Let's rewind um, a little bit. Okay, so you said entrepreneurial family and you also said uh, waiter. So we have a couple of things. Uh, let's yes. go to the, like, what do you mean the entrepreneurial family? Were your family business or what was the story? So, yeah, so um, my mom worked in the local hospital and my um, father um, worked for a local business, but also had a separate landscaping and tree business um, my entire life. So my brother um, would help my dad on the weekends with that business. And, um, and I just came from a family. It was really hardworking. We, um, some key lessons at an early age, we always sat to have dinner together each night as a family. Uh, my brother and I were really um, into sports. So regardless of what games we had or practices we had, we always made sure that we had uh, dinner together every night as a family, which was really, really important. And um, simple things, I remember my parents balancing their checkbooks every Sunday while they watched 60 Minutes. And so there's some pivotal <laughs> things that I learned um, as a young child growing up. Um, you know, we did not come from means. We were a middle-class family. So um, when I would see my dad and, and my mom working so hard, you know, they always felt like you shouldn't live off of debt. So really being able to afford what you buy and things like that are some some areas of values and I think morals and ethics that still go along with uh, my brother and I today. Um, and if I think where we came from, my brother is a really successful entrepreneur himself. Uh, he owns a healthcare and IT consulting firm called E4 Services, which him and his partner started uh, on their own. Uh, and when I saw him start that company at a time when his wife was pregnant with my nephew, um, you know, when I thought about founding Anagenesis, I had enough um, 
folks around me, close family members that I saw do it, that I felt comfortable. Like if they can do it, you know, I'm sure I can figure this out. So they really inspired me, but um, I have a tight knit family and, and they really taught me a lot of great things that I, I still uh, deal with today. I think that's interesting because one of the common themes in these uh, episodes is the people who started their firms, they've had either in their family or close to them uh, role models and the, the importance of role models in starting their business, it's, it, I, it just keeps on coming up in every single episode where we talk with entrepreneurs. Um, but before we get to Angenesis, like what was the next step? Like, so you're a bank teller. No, I'm sorry. We forgot to talk about the waiter story. What was your first uh, waitress job? There was a, a little um, diner in our town that was literally like a 1950s diner. So um, people chuckle about this, but when I first started to waitress, I was wearing like a poodle skirt and like a little like fluffy top and I was dressed up like 1950s, but you know, I was like a teenager. So, um, you know, but I would open the restaurant at like five o'clock in the morning, which, you know, for on the weekend. So to be like a young person and getting up to open a restaurant at 5 a.m. Um, was kind of unheard of, but it taught me a tremendous amount of responsibility. Um, I loved waitressing because it was immediate gratification. Like if I was great, you know, good to the customer and they liked me and I liked them, I would get a great tip. And yeah. so I, it was instant gratification that I loved and basically like supported me through high school and, and frankly into college as well. Um, so those were, I had several waitresses job, including that one that I just That's mentioned. Awesome. Along. Well, yeah, I remember my, one of my first real jobs was, well, first I worked at an airport and I worked, you know, I cleaning, refueling and manning the, the, the desk. Um, but then also like at Outback Steakhouse and I started off as a bus boy and you learn how to hustle when you work in a restaurant. And it just really um, was one of the best experiences because to be honest, like growing up, you know, my, my dad was an airline pilot. We, we grew off, um, you know, upper middle class. And I, frankly, I didn't have to work for what I should have. And that was, I needed that. And I started because like when my dad died, I had to pay for college. I had to pay for everything. And um, working at Outback Steakhouse, being a busboy, that was one of the best experiences. And I think I was a busboy actually to clarify for like seven days because then they, because here's what happened. I went to the, I went to the owner. I was like, Will, did you play any sports. He's like, yeah, I played college football. I was like, well, what would you do? He's like, I was a quarterback. Well, why weren't you the kicker? He's like, what are you talking about? He said, I said, Will, you weren't the kicker because you could add the most value to the team as a quarterback. Why am I a busboy? Let me be a waiter. He's like, fine, be a waiter next Monday. (laughs) You saw, I mean, I, that is such a small restaurant. I did everything from like busing the tables to bringing people out to to being a waitress and it teaches you so much about interaction, patience, yep. um, just, in, you know, multitasking for sure. It was great experience growing up and, you know, I used those money to buy my first car. So I learned, like, oh my gosh, it was like a 19, like 80, like Volkswagen bug that was literally lime green with like the crap <laughs> brown interior and like, it was, it was crazy. Like squeaky brakes, like rotor issues, like way more than I ever want to know about cars, but I think it was like $520. But, um, <laughs> that's a very specific number that you've clearly remembered. <laughs> I don't remember what it took to get that car. Um, uh, but everyone knew I was coming cause it was the brightest, like awful color green you could possibly imagine. 
Uh, but yeah, that was my first call. So um, I learned at a very young age that if you work hard, you kind of get what you want. So I was, I guess I was capitalistic um, from a very early age, but that work ethic um, kind of plays through my entire story to where it is today. Um, so your next step was being a bank teller and how did, what, what's that? So then I was the bank teller, which is why I realized I wanted to get into finance. I was at East Stroudsburg University thinking I wanted to be a teacher till I went into that classroom and realized I could not be a teacher. Got interested in finance through being a bank teller. Um, and then when I realized I wanted to get into finance, East Stroudsburg University didn't really have a strong program for that, um, but they had a really strong teaching program. So I actually transferred to York College of Pennsylvania, small liberal arts school in York, PA. They had the option to have a dual degree in economics and finance. So I transferred to York College of Pennsylvania, um, entered their dual degree program, uh, ended up um, also doing a minor in accounting. And while I was there, I reached out to another local bank that was there at the time it was called Meridian Bank, which eventually folded up to what is now today Wells Fargo. But I got a bank teller job with them um, in a small little branch out there while I was going to school. And on the weekends, I would travel from York to my hometown and work on Saturday and Sundays um, at that same restaurant while I was in college. And then I also at school, I was the captain of our soccer team. Uh, and then I had a work study program at school also, which was like working for the alumni phonathon. So we would call alumni and, you know, ask them to donate. And um, similar to your story about being a bus boy moving to a, wait a waiter, when I was doing the alumni phonathon, I would see like everybody who was calling people, they weren't even calling alums. They were like calling their friends and family and like hanging out on the phone. And there were no like markers to how to determine were people uh, doing their jobs. So I went to the head of the program, like we have to restructure this whole thing. You know, people are just calling their friends and family. You have no targets for people. Like nobody's getting any money. Like you have to incentivize people. We have to have like performance reviews. And she just said like, you want the job? And I said, sure, I'll take the job. So I got promoted to manager of this phonathon. I was a sophomore at college. I, half my friends worked there. I like fired half my friends. I like had to hire new people, that bunch of people that played soccer. You're not me. performing, you're not performing. See you Friday, by the way, for the party. <laughs> Here's the target. And it's so funny when we did well, they would have pizza parties for us, which as a college student, like a pizza party was a huge deal. So um, anyway, I was managing that phonathon, which taught me a ton about dealing with people and, you know, people would go out the night before and party and like not show up for work at the phonathon. And I have to like discipline them and not, you know, hold back their pay and do all sorts of wild stuff. But, um, and they all played soccer with me as well, you know, so it was a really interesting experience. And I actually fired my roommate at one point, she, she, she got fired. So, um, in any event, I was doing all of that, but as I was being a bank teller at that other small bank, um, they had a corporate finance team who was in that same little building and the head of that team, I still, his name's Gene Draganowski. He kept coming over into my teller line and cashing his check. And I thought, I want to do what he's doing. Cause back then he looked like, you know, he was a billionaire relative to the checks I was cashing for him. So I asked him, what are you doing on that side of the bank? And he told me all about his group and what he does. He said, do you want to do an internship? And I said, I would love that. Um, could I come and, and intern with you? And he said, sure, we can have it be a paid internship because he knew I was getting paid as a teller. And I transitioned over to this corporate finance group and started to do this internship. And, you know, this is kind of a theme too that we could touch on is that whenever an opportunity came to me like that, I always felt like be ready for that opportunity and open for the opportunity. Because a lot of times I think people have opportunities present themselves 
and they think maybe I'm not ready or should I take this opportunity? I think you have to have enough confidence and trust in yourself. And then also in the person who's giving it to you to be open to receiving it. And when he gave me that opportunity, I'm like, sure, I'll do it. And he had me over there. I was like, started to do credit underwriting. And, you know, I had no idea. I didn't know what EBITDA was. I didn't know how to think about a company. And one of the really profound things that he did is he started to take me out to go see customers. So I would be out with CEOs and CFOs and, you know, I didn't even have a suit at the time. So I was like running around trying to figure out what business suits I should wear and what, how I should dress as a college student going into these meetings. And one thing I really loved in those meetings is he never said like, hey, here's our intern, Melanie. He would just say, hi, this is Melanie. And so they never really looked at me as an intern, which was, it's so really taught me the importance of words um, because then people looked at me just as somebody who worked at the bank, even though, you know, I was a sophomore in college. And um, I learned so much through going to meetings and, and through those experiences. I mean, it, and, then, and then it became, they wanted me to work more hours and I started to like actually get into deal flow. And I would be trying to balance like the phone-a-thon with being captain of the soccer team, all my schoolwork and this job now at the bank. And fortunately at that school, I went to some key professors there and just said like, hey, I'm at this job now, I'm learning so much. Can we figure out a way in a non-traditional way where I can lever what I'm doing that in that in that job and bring it back to the classroom? And can we incorporate that in some of my more traditional studies? So like I'm giving back to the classroom, but in a different way. And my professors were really interested in it. So every Friday I would go back to the classroom and talk about what I was learning, tell them about the deals I was working on, like talking about like financial statements spreading. And so I had a really like non-traditional college life as well, because I was kind of in like a residency program that you would have in medical school. I was balancing the learning in the industry while taking classroom training at the same time. And it was really valuable for my professors, for my classmates. Uh, And then while I was there, uh, that bank had gotten bought by a Philadelphia-based bank, Core States Bank. And they had a really high-end program, a relationship management development program, they called it. And people would travel around different groups of, of the firm. And a guy came from Philadelphia, his name was Mark Gorman. And he was going to do a six-month rotation in this little tiny branch in our group. And when he came to our branch, it's like, I cannot believe I'm stuck out in the middle of nowhere. You know, he came from Philadelphia and he's like, I can't believe I'm going to be stuck out here. Like, what am I going to do? And, and I met him and we became great friends. Um, you know, he was a lawyer by training, um, you know, had his MBA, has very successful background. And I learned so much from him. And at the same time, he was such a big advocate for me. Like I taught him kind of the ropes of the office. You know, I taught him how we were doing deals and his six months had ended. um, And I was coming up, it was right before my senior year. And he said, Melanie, I'm going to get you into this program. And I said, Mark, you know, that program is for people coming out of graduate school, like the program he was in. Like I'm just graduating from my bachelor's degree. He said, Melanie, don't worry. And he went, he wrote a letter and recommended me for the program. And they said, no, they're like, she's too green. You know, she doesn't have her MBA. We can't accept her into the program. And I didn't know till many years later that he actually said he would resign from the bank if they didn't hire me into the program. And he never told me that. Uh, And he was a top performer in that program. So uh, 
he gave me the opportunity to get into that program. And um, they accepted me into the program and I moved to Philadelphia after graduation. Uh, myself, my dog in a U-Haul truck uh, found our way to Philadelphia. And I had never lived in like a big city before at the time, Philadelphia was a big city. Uh, and a whole bunch of trials and tribulations there. And I thought I was um, gonna be super rich because my first job, I made $30,000. And I thought, wow, like, you know, the world is my oyster till I had to pay for everything that's required to pay <laughs> living in like Philadelphia. And I had like three cents in my bank account after taxes and all the expenses. Um, and so I got into this program. I was uh, doing credit training. I learned so much from that program. And to, uh, I was working out hard at that time and I was trying to figure out how I was going to pay for a gym membership. So I joined like the YMCA. I forget what the membership was. And I took a ton of spinning classes. And at one point I'm in a spin class and, and the trainer afterwards came up to me and was like, you're always in my class. Have you ever thought about teaching? <laughs> and I said, Can I get paid to teach. He said, absolutely. He told me we pay like $30 for each class. And I went to like the old days spinning, like what it is Peloton today. It was Johnny G was like the original spin uh, person. And I went to Johnny G's, uh, Johnny G's training to become a spin instructor to our point earlier, no training whatsoever, no like preparation. It was a week long class, like literally on the bike for a week, uh, like no, for like 48 hours. And so I got certified to teach spin. And I was teaching spin like a maniac. I would teach like before work, after work, pick up extra classes. Um, and I was giving me a ton of like extra money. Plus I never had to pay for my gym membership. Your, your, your boss over at the bank, you're like, listen, I'm basically <laughs> making more as a spin class instructor than I am working for you. Exactly. Me more. Exactly. So um, it was a great experience. Um, the instructor's name is Dave Sylvester. We still laugh about it today. I just talked the other day. I'm like, do you remember when you took me to that Johnny, Gin, uh, Johnny G spin training? He's like, oh my gosh. So we were joking about that. So these are all friendships and people that I still have in my life today. So, um, so anyway, I was in that program. The bank got bought by a group called First Union, got rolled up through Wachovia and is now Wells Fargo. Uh, but that same person who got me to that program had left that bank and went to New York to start uh, a job at a Canadian uh, bank. And he called me and he said, Melanie, you should move to New York. There's so much opportunity up here. Come to New York. I'll get you some interviews. And, you know, he had got me to that initial program. So I trusted him. I said, sure, I'll come up there. Interviewed at a bunch of places in New York, um, actually ended up getting a position at the same bank he was working for at the Canadian bank. I was so scared to move to New York. I was so scared about working in New York. I didn't know anyone in New York. And he said, don't worry, I'll be here. You know, I'll help you. And literally, I joined that Canadian bank. Like a week later, he quit the Canadian bank and like started a hedge fund. So I was on my own, but uh, worked there for a number of years. And um met somebody in the sponsor coverage team there, wanted to transition over to doing uh, more deals with private equity firms. But um, at that Canadian bank, they said like, you're too green, you're too young, you need more experience in your current role. I had been in my role about two years doing general corporate lending. And I talked to the guy who headed up um, sponsor coverage. And I said, listen, I'll come over here. I'll take a reduction in title. I'll even take a reduction in pay if I have to. I just want to learn under you. He was a really aggressive, smart guy. Um, he had come from Goldman Sachs and joined that group. And he just said, sure, I'll, 
I'll take a chance, come join our team. And then it was really ironic because I joined his team and my team said, no, no, we'll promote you. Just stay. We'll give you a raise. And I thought like, no, that's a little bit too late now. I've moved on. So I joined that sponsor coverage group and that was a tremendous experience for me. It was during the heyday. Pay cut and a uh, position cut? Didn't uh, make me take a pay cut. I kept my title the same and we agreed if I did well in that group that he would promote me within a year. And I got promoted like six months later. And uh, I went to that group and just started originating deals with private equity firms across industries. I wasn't healthcare focused at that point and just really killed it there. Um, I was one of the top performers there. Uh, then I started to do a number of international deals with some high net worth individuals that were d- doing some really cool telecom deals. And uh, one day in 2015, I got a call, or sorry, tw- 2006, got a call from somebody over at GE who wanted to meet with me to recruit me for the healthcare financial services team. Um, He had heard about my private equity uh, experience, my private equity relationships. And at the time, GE had acquired a group called Antares. And um, the healthcare financial services team was concerned that they would lose their sponsor coverage business to Antares as a competing business uh, within GE. So they were trying to build out the sponsor coverage team. And they hired me uh, into GE for that purpose. And so from 2006 to 2015, I was in the healthcare financial services team and looked at over 550 healthcare deals, deployed about $2 billion of capital for that platform, uh, made them 70 million plus in fees uh, and was extremely successful and learned a ton about healthcare and further enhanced my private equity experience. And um, then I realized in 2015 that everyone was really falling into their boxes of what they could do within the industry. There were private equity firms that were focused in on healthcare, but there weren't any private credit funds that focused in on healthcare. And there weren't a lot of firms out there who, instead of creating what they wanted to create for them and their investors, they could really work with borrowers and say, what is your need? And let me solve for your need versus here's what I can give you. Do you fit into my box? So I saw a need in the market for a healthcare focused private credit fund. Um, and someone once told me that you have to be the right place. You have to be at the right place at the right time, the right person with the right idea. And so when I checked those boxes, I felt like I was the right person. It was the right time in, in my life to leave GE and start something different. I knew if I left, I didn't want to go start another firm do, or work at another firm and do more of the same. I wanted to be intellectually tra- challenged and stimulated. I wanted something that was exciting and different. And I wanted something also that I could create value for myself and, and see a direct line of sight to other people cre- getting that value that I was creating, i.e. our investors. And so with that, I left. Um, I mean, um, were, you, were you nervous starting it? How did you find your co-founder? What's kind of like the, the kind of founding story of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I chuckle now. I say I'm a little, I was uh, naive and cocky enough all at the same time. So I figured worst case scenario, I'd be doing exactly what I had been doing before I started the firm. Um, so I evaluated my downside and said, you know, I'm talented enough that I can get another job somewhere. If this doesn't work out, albeit with less money in my bank account. Um, but in a best case scenario, this is going to work out. So um and I was kind of guided that it would take about three years to raise. So, you know, I, kind of, I at that point, I just really like hunkered down. I knew that I had to make sacrifices 
personally and professionally make sure that I had my house in order. We talked about that in our webinar is like, if you're going to make a big change like this, you have to have your house in order, meaning that you have to think about your personal finances. You have to make sure you have your head straight. You have to make sure you're really focused on your goal. And when I quit and knew I wanted to found a firm, I said, there's not going to be a plan B. If I allow myself mentally to have a plan B, I'm never going to push yeah. forward plan A. And it I just reminds me like when I started a, um, uh, I, w- I wanted to do a search fund back in like 2014. And I was like one foot in the business, one foot in the job. And I wasn't willing to commit full time to it. And there's yeah. that. And I, I had to commit to my first business, Debt Maven, and then now Business 51 Labs. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> like <laughs> I didn't have a job. But I think one of the other things to your earlier point, which I would maybe add to is um, in terms of kind of getting your, your house in order, also kind of getting the expectations set that For it's sure. going to suck. It is yes. going to suck to an extent that you can't really foresee. Yeah. And having, you know, the family, at least knowing that from a high level and kind of talking to other entrepreneurs and other families to see like, hey, this is what you're probably going to go through. Not in the same way, but in a different way, probably to the same extent. It's funny you say that, Jordan, because now looking back, I would totally agree with you. Like we joke, like entrepreneurship is not sexy. At the time I did it, I mean, I knew it was going to be hard, but I had no idea. That's why I say that naive part. I had no idea really what that meant. I mean, I had gotten a direct deposit in my account at that point for, you know, like 15 years. So um, I was not fully appreciating what that would mean to not get a direct deposit and fund a business for years. I mean, I had no idea. So now... Uh, like a friend told me one time, she said, if people really understood what pregnancy was all about, like the human race would die forever because nobody tells you like (laughs) horrible stories of what happens during pregnancy. Everyone just says like, it's beautiful and it's great. Uh, and it's the same sort of way about owning your own firm and starting your own firm. Like if people really knew they'd be so scared, um, but it's really hard. And I think having the tenacity and the wherewithal and just level setting yourself and, and having expectations for you and people around you is, is so incredibly important. Having friends and family that know that it's just going to consume your life for a period of time. You really have to have a strong support system around you for sure. Yeah. And I think one of the things my wife did well, you know, Jing, so multiple times when she put her foot down in terms of like, hey, you have 100 days to raise your first round. You have 100 days to get X amount in the bank. And doing that, because the entrepreneur by definition has to be optimistic, has to see a future that others do not. And you're always saying, hey, just one more month, just one more sale, whatever that is. But then it's a matter of like creating those concrete goals um, mm-hmm. yes, you need to be flexible, but also there needs to be a time and like, listen, sometimes after X amount of years, maybe the idea just sucks, or maybe mm-hmm. you just suck at executing that idea and you need to move on. And I realized that with my other business and I was, mm-hmm. but now with this, like it's taken 14 years to find out what I'm meant to do in life. But it, yeah, I, there's a good book that touches on that called the dip. I don't know if you've ever read that, I but the dip, no. yeah, the dip really, um, talks about that time when you have to reevaluate and say, am I on the right, right road and being able to be humble enough to say, maybe I'm not, maybe this isn't for me. So as much as I didn't have a plan B, 
I had a, enough conviction that um, I knew it would take time, but um, if we stuck with it, we would be successful. All right, so let's dive a little bit deeper into like the founding of this. Can you walk through just some of the, the process that you were going through? What is even going through your head, you know, as you were starting the firm, working with a co-founder, et cetera? Yeah, I think as we touched on just uh, previously a little bit, you know, making sure that you have a strong support system around you that will support you through your journey, as well as making sure you understand what you're getting into. I thought the point you made about expectations was really, really important for yourself and the people around you. I think um, for anybody who's trying to start a firm, a few kind of lessons learned along the way is if you are going to have a partner, make sure that you and your partner develop a really solid operating agreement, similar to, you know, having a prenuptial in a marriage, you want to kind of lay the foundation for what can go right, what can go wrong, what happens if something goes wrong, what happens if one of the partners passes, whatever the case might be you should have a really strong operating agreement. As well, um, you know, a lot of times when people talk about value creation, sometimes people distill it down to how much money can you bring to the table? And um, what I found is value is created and provided in a lot of different ways. And it's not all about dollars and cents. And some people come with uh, value contribution that can't be translated into the money in which they can contribute. So I would say for founders, don't ever sell yourself short in a partnership. Make sure you understand your own value and and negotiate accordingly. And it's also Uh, going to take into account this, the long-term nature of what you are doing. And this reminds me when I was starting my first business, the, this one person I was talking with is like, you know, I'm providing all the seed capital. I was like, but I'm doing most of the work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's exactly right. I'm like literally going to do this and you might or might not quit your job in three to six months and yeah. you might or might not join the team, but who's going to be put into 16 hour, 18 hour days for the next six months just to get this that's, thing hopefully off the ground. That's a really good point, Jordan, because essentially what you're talking about was a sweat equity. So you weren't providing the seed capital, but you were doing all the work, right? So you're, and without your work, that seed capital is just money in the bank right? So you really created the value beyond what that seed capital would be generating in the bank if that person kept the money in the bank at, you know, at this point now, like, you know, maybe a point. So, um, you know, understanding what value you're bringing to the table and how to think about that when you're negotiating is extremely important. And I think Um, this also bring up a really important point, which you mentioned earlier, which is, um, and also my wife was mentioning, a very similar story, which is like knowing your value and being confident in that. It's like when you're about to leave the firm and you tell your boss, hey, I'm going to leave the firm. And then they fight really hard to do that. It's like, just be confident in the value that you have yeah, and being willing to walk away, not as going after them, but just willing like, no, I, I, I truly understand what I'm bringing to the table here now and in the exactly. future. It reminds me a lot of when I would get my bonuses along the way, like at the Canadian bank, they would never tell us our bonus. They would hand it to us in a sealed letter. And a lot of people would sit in their boss's office and like rip open the letter in front of their boss and then have this whole big debate about what was in the letter and if they liked it or thought it should be more. And I would always just take my letter and like walk out of the office. And, you know, people would always say, what are you doing? Why aren't you opening it? Why aren't you like having a debate about it? Like the decision has already been made about what my value is and what they're going to pay me. 
I just now need to decide how I feel about that and how I respond to it. And if I don't like it, I'll leave. And, you know, it's not like they've ever changed the number even after a heated debate. So it is what it is. <laughs> and I remember talking with someone one time and they said, Millie, I can tell you how much you're going to get paid next year. And I was joking, like, how do you even know? You don't even work at the same firm. And he said, I know how much you're going to get paid next year. I said, what is that? He said, you're going to get paid about a dollar more than what they think they have to pay you to keep you working for another year. <laughs> and it always stuck with me. I thought, you know what? It's so true. So understanding your value and knowing when you're being valued and appreciated is so incredibly important. And I think for women in particular, that's a real tough struggle. I think that, uh, and someone noted this on our last blog that um, so many women maybe don't apply for certain jobs because they don't feel like they're completely qualified yet in general, men will like fire off their resume, even if they have like, you know, a third of qualifications, like there's just a lack of um, confidence or the ability or the like need to feel like you need to be a perfectionist to take on that, you know, to put your name out there. What do you think and that so, is? Do you think that is, you think there's enough data, for example, to make an accurate generalization about the difference between men and women in applying for jobs? Or I don't know if there's some studies out there, for example, or maybe just anecdotally from your experience. Do you think that's, there's that, they yeah. want to have like, I am qualified on 10 out of 10 things. Now I'm going to apply. Yeah. I mean, I, just from talking with enough women being in a lot of different panels, a lot of different forums, a lot of different seminars around the industry. I mean, I've heard that recurring theme over and over again. And I guess in hiring um, other women and being mentors for other women um, in and out of our industry, um, I have found that uh, in women when something will come up and I'll say like, hey, you can totally go for this. Like, well, you know, but I don't meet like qualification, like four through seven. I'm like, neither will anyone else who's applying, but like, you should put your name forward. And I think there's just <laughs> such a hesitation to like, want to meet all like not feeling wanting to feel like disingenuous. And, and, and instead of like, overselling yourself, I feel like um, that women undersell themselves. And even frankly, for me, and my own personal experience as confident, and as sure of myself that I was, when I was coming into starting our firm, I felt like I completely undersold myself. Um, and I think because I was always in that environment, it was just natural to do that. But even in, you know, previous performance reviews and things like that, I think women are just really transparent and honest with what's happening and don't think about like the upsell. And if, it, if you walk around and say the same thing over and over, like people start to believe it. So I think for women really being their own advocate and their own champions for their own lives and their own career is just really, really important. And I think all too often um, in general, women sell themselves short. How qualified do you think you were to start the firm? Um, <laughs> I, I, it's a tough question. I would say that um, I knew I knew healthcare really, really well. Yeah. Um, you know, in my entire career, knock on wood, I've never had a loss. Um, and, you know, at GE, I deployed over $2 billion of capital. So um, I felt like I had a really good track record of investing. Um, I knew healthcare, I knew how to underwrite, I knew how to generate deal flow. Um, the areas that I didn't have a lot of experience was around fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know 
how to fundraise. I didn't know how to think about what the investors were going to want, what was going to be important to them beyond the basics of, of the math behind returns. I didn't know what the market was going to want from a fund. And I had never fundraised in that capacity. As you know, I'm a founder of a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So I fundraised a ton from a nonprofit perspective, which I'd have a debate with my own mind about what's more difficult, raising for a nonprofit or raising for <laughs> a fund. But they're both very similar in a lot of ways. Um, it depends on which part of the, of the purse strings you pull from, from people. But um, I didn't have experience fundraising. I did have experience um, even with the nonprofit in creating a company and starting from scratch and things like that. So um, I had some business building experience as well. And then also GE was a very entrepreneurial um, environment. So uh, I did have that entrepreneurial side of me. So I think where the biggest gap I saw in my knowledge base or skill set was really around the fundraise. And, you know, I'm just a firm believer that whatever I don't know, I'm totally comfortable saying I don't know. And then I just try to surround my people, uh, myself with people who do know and are experts in their own right and their own field. And I'm always an avid learner and I'm humble enough to say I don't know. So yeah. I knew fundraising was going to be a whole nother world for me. Um, and, you know, I was relatively quick study, but raising a first time fund is not for the faint of heart, clearly. <laughs> so, um, well, why didn't you? you know, join a healthcare focused firm and say, Hey, I'm gonna do the credit side. Or, you know, why, why go off on your own versus like going into a larger infrastructure? Yeah, I had those opportunities even before I left. Um, and then when I was leaving, I, those opportunities were certainly still there. I think for me, Jordan, I got to a point uh, in my career and my life where I felt like, if I was going to create a tremendous amount of value, um, I wanted it to translate back to me um, and, and me then being able to use that wealth creation to do other great things in the world. Um, as you know, from talking with me, I'm very focused in giving back uh, to community and people in many different ways. And so one of the joys that I have in creating wealth for myself is also to be able to do great things in this world. And there's many, many things that I would love to do on a larger scale. And so um, I felt like it was time for me to do something different. I also, one of the joys that I find is really advancing and creating other great opportunities for people. So the idea to have a firm where then we could hire people that were giving them opportunities that they would have no idea how much they could grow and expand in those opportunities was really, really intriguing to me. And so, and we've done that with the people that we've hired and brought on board. So um, I wanted to create an environment, a culture and a, and a business that I could be super proud of and we could hire people and develop people um, the way that we wanted to do that. We could manage our investors the way that we wanted to do it. And we could just create a great organization that could live way beyond my partner and I um, and, and leave a bit of a legacy in the industry. Well, what are, you know, maybe a year into it or so, um, you know, when times might have gotten difficult, um, like cool, we got the operational side, investing side, but even on like the fundraising side, you're saying you're pretty new to that. Is there anybody who kind of like maybe guided you, mentor, role, role model, or, you know, someone who really kind of helped you along the way? Yeah, I would say, and that's why I'm doing like 
sitting here and chatting with you today. I think um, one of my motivations to do it is that for other people who are founding their firms, I wish people would have candid conversations about some of these things because I think all too often people aren't openly talking about these things. But when I decided um, with my partner to found our firm, you know, I kept hearing you should talk to Jerry. You should, you should talk to Jerry. And it's funny because my partner's name is Jerry. So I'm like, I, of course, I'm talking to him. He's my partner. They're like, no, the other Jerry. Like there is another Jerry. And they were referring to Jerry Harmon at Avanti. And it's really interesting because so many people, when I said I was starting my own firm, kept saying, you have to meet Jerry Harmon. You should talk to Jerry Harmon. And I didn't know who Jerry was. But also what I found pretty profound is that everybody was saying the same name. So I'm like, it's amazing how as a female founder, people were all translating to one other female founder, which means there can't be a lot of us out there or there would be you know, 50 people people would wanna refer me to. It always came back to Jerry Harmon. So I felt like, my gosh, I have to meet Jerry Harmon. And, one t- and I was able to meet her at an event in Los Angeles. She was sitting on a panel. And when I saw her, you would have thought she was like, you know, I don't even know the Dalai Lama or like anyone, like I looked at her like, oh my gosh, there's like an aura. (laughs) (laughs) And if you know, Jerry, she's so humble, so down to earth. And I went running up to her, like, you know, like a teenage girl at like a rock concert for like a boy band. I was like, oh my gosh, Jerry Harmon. And, um, she's just was such a tremendous, like, open my one pager. (laughs) (laughs) And we spent a lot of time talking. She was incredibly helpful for me. And about two years into the raise, we were in like the doldrums of like trying to get raised, trying to, you know, get to the next level. And she saw me in an event and she put, she came up behind me and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, Melanie, it's going to be okay. And I said, no, what do you mean? You know, I'm drinking coffee. I'm ready to go to my next meeting. She's like, no, not right now. Like in general, it is going to be okay. And I said, what are you talking about? She's like, I see it in your eyes. I see it in your face. I know exactly where you are. She's like, just hold on. It'll be okay. And she shared like some of her like dip moments in trying to build the business. She's like, this is what I had to do. This is what was happening. It's going to be okay stay the course, stay focused. And I remember that day, like it was yesterday, like her hand touching my shoulder and, you know, I'll be forever grateful for her. She, and she really like, I looked at her and said, you know, if she can do it, like I can do it. And that's another reason why in founding our firm, I wanted to say, I, I was really focused to say, I want to be one more Jerry out there that when other people, not just women, but when other people are thinking about taking that step to go out on their own, they can look and say, okay, I get it. That's one other person who's done it. And so she really inspired me has been an incredible um, help for me along the way, personally. That's amazing. You know, that reminds me a couple of things. One, she had mentioned a story in the vlog that we did together where she said that she had to go, I think it was like to a, a fundraise in some state. And she said, basically walked through the back door of a men's only club. And they thought that, you know, she was somebody else. And like, she didn't, she didn't, they thought she would be a different Jerry as opposed to the Jerry who walked in the door or something like that. And it was just so interesting to hear those stories about, you know, the pioneers for women in private equity and just Mm -hmm. um, hearing those stories does have an impact on people and vocalizing that we are there for others. You know, there's uh, somebody who, you know, 
there's a guy named Karan Rai who started a firm called Asgard Partners. And he said, hey, listen, like I've been down this road, call me anytime you need to, doesn't matter what day and time it is. And I took him up on that one time and I was just really in a bad place. And just to have somebody there who said, I'm, I'm yours, let's talk. Yeah. And I think it was like at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. at night one time. And I was just, I was lost. And mm-hmm. it was him saying clearly, you can call me if you need me. Yeah. yeah we, it's so important, Jordan, what you're saying, because and we talked about this on our other call as well. You know, I have kind of my own, you know, trusted advisors, I call them. And they're people who have been in my life for a long time, short time, whatever, it's from totally diverse backgrounds, like not even necessarily in the financial services space, but they're just people that I really value their opinion. Um, I really trust the guidance they could give me. And also people who have seen multiple layers and iterations of things that I've gone through in my career or things that I've done and just understand me. And whenever I have a challenge in my life or something, I'll call them or they'll call me and just check in on me and, and vice versa. And it's really interesting because through the good times and the bad times, even when I was about to start Anagenesis, one of those trusted advisors said, Mel, you know what? You have been so incredible in your career to date. Like, go do this on your own. Like, go shine and go do it your way, the way you know how to do it. You know, you don't have to follow the other rules and, um, you know, you'll figure it out. You'll be totally fine. And here, enough people say that and say it's not going to be easy, but I'm here for that phone call anytime if you need to have that call um, is so, so important for sure. Yeah, there's so much that is unknown and uncharted, even in a path like this within private equity or starting an M&A advisory business, where it's like, oh, okay, that's how you do it. You spin off, you do this, you go off and raise money, do good investments, don't lose money. It's really easy actually, but there's so many unknowns regardless Mm -hmm. of the entrepreneurial endeavor and the path. And one of my takeaways in the past four years is, is, is to your point, which is finding that advisory network, having an informal advisory board and continually mm-hmm. bouncing ideas and your pains, your ups and your downs. And it's just like, you're just trying to make small course corrections and just try to get through the next week, the next month, the next quarter yeah. until you yeah. get through that earliest startup phase. One of the things that uh, my partner, Jerry, is incredibly good at is he really keeps like a ton of lists. So when we were like starting out and going through, like he would create so many lists and just say like, we're just crossing things off this list. And he's like, even if it's not perfect, like we're just doing it and we're going to readjust and we're just going to do it again and readjust and do it again and readjust. And he just was always that way. And that was one of the things that he brought to the table to really make sure that we stayed on course and just said, and you talk about this a lot, right? Just do action. If you just like get caught up in the theory, you're not ever going to get anywhere. You have to act, even if it's not perfect. And it's so, so true. I mean, that's definitely true in building a business. You just have to put one foot forward and it might not be the right direction, but then you adjust accordingly and you put another foot forward and adjust accordingly. And I think no matter if you're an entrepreneur in our space or someone else's space, I mean, for me now starting our firm, I feel like for our portfolio companies, I can connect so much better to those founders because when they hear that we founded our firm, they'll say like, you get it, or I get it, what it means to that you're a founder. And we can identify with those entrepreneurs that started now our portfolio companies to say, we understand what it means to be a business owner. So 
if we beat you over the head with fees and expenses, we know what that means to your bottom line because we went through it. And when we're engaging with vendors for whatever service we're providing, I love to work with other vendors who are also entrepreneurs versus like huge companies, because I know that when they give me a proposal, they can also appreciate that we don't have unlimited dollars and cents and every dollar that we spend for somebody else, you know, at one point was coming out of our checking accounts. Now it's, you know, a different dynamic, but still understanding the give and take between two entrepreneurs is a very different discussion from a big company to an entrepreneur. And so I think going through it, there's a lot of other added benefits along the way is also. Why do you focus on healthcare? Like what's the background? Like, why do you, why are you passionate about this? Are there any particular like experiences with portfolio companies or something that really had an impact on you? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I didn't necessarily seek out focusing on healthcare prior to joining GE. I had done a few healthcare deals. There was one that I really loved at the Canadian bank. It was called KCI. It's a very large company now, but um, Danny Ware was the original owner and they created wound vac systems. You might know this from your experience with some vets, but they create wound vacs. So when somebody has massive wounds on their body, everything from bed sores, but you know, in the military environment, if you have a massive gaping wound, this, um, this machinery kind of sticks onto that wound and provides a clean environment for the wound and also presses, presses oxygen into the wound. And it was a very kind of earlier stage company back then. Now it's, it's, much larger. Um, and they do like beds and all sorts of other things. But back then it was a very small company. And I remember meeting him and hearing a, the story around the wound care. And I just, then September 11th happened and those same wound backs were being used on people who, um, were hurt in nine 11. And it just really brought it home as somebody who was there during nine 11 as well. And I felt, wow, it's amazing that I'm helping to finance a business that's providing these Vacs who are now it's now being placed on people that I know who were hurt during 9-11. It was just such a cathartic experience for me where the entire like loop of what I was doing really connected for me. Uh, and then when I had the opportunity presented to me to join GE and, and niche down into healthcare, initially I was a little bit concerned. I thought maybe I was pigeon pigeonholing myself for my career. And um then I started to learn more about healthcare and thought if I'm ever going to go into a specific industry, I love that healthcare is giving back to people. It kind of fits into the whole theme of who I am as a person. Uh, and my brother owned a healthcare business as well. My mom worked in the hospital. So I had a lot of healthcare around me per se. And I felt like it would be a good industry to focus on and one that would continue to grow and all, always be around because everybody needs healthcare. And when I dip down into that at GE and start to learn more about the industry. Although it's one industry, it has, you know, almost a hundred different subsectors within it. And I understood the complexity of the industry. And I just realized there's nothing else that I would want to do besides healthcare. And that was particularly important when um, I left GE. I, know, I knew I wanted to still focus in on healthcare. Um, I couldn't imagine being a generalist or, or focusing on another industry. And um, even within our portfolio, it's really incredible to see how we're changing people's lives and really impacting um, the broader community by providing healthcare services, not just in urban markets, but in rural areas as well, whether it be mental health um, needs or behavioral health or you know, anything across the spectrum for our portfolio companies. I feel really proud that we're giving to society versus taking back. 
So talking about giving to society, I saw on your LinkedIn profile, the Pitt Foundation. What's the, what's the background with that? So when I left um, the Canadian bank before I started GE, I literally knew I needed a break. I knew that I, if I started another firm without taking a break, <laughs> um, I, it might be the first time in my life I ever burned out. Um, and something just came to me. I was sitting on the sofa and I said, I want to go volunteer internationally uh, was kind of the first thing that I said to myself. And then I said, I'm going to Kenya. And I was kind of laugh now because I had no connection to Kenya. I knew nothing about Kenya. I said, I'm going right. Similar. Wait, to why person. Kenya? What, how'd it come up? It just literally like, you know, sometimes it's funny how things in life work. Like when you said, I'm running a marathon in one week <laughs> without any planning, it was the same thing. I'm like, I'm going to Kenya. I did no research. And so then I started Googling like Kenya volunteer opportunities. And um, this organization from the UK came up and it's like, Hey, we're doing this pilot program, you know, go to Kenya and teach English. And I just literally signed up on the spot. Then I started to tell people I'm going to Kenya. Like, are you crazy that like, there was just a bombing there? Like there was like the U S state department issued, like, you know, don't travel there. And I, people are like, you're crazy or you're, you know, this is not safe for you. Um, and by the way, who are you going with? I'm like, no, I'm just going by myself. And I think people thought like, I might be having a nervous breakdown. Like I just came up with this, but I was totally fine. I said, I'm going to do this. And um, I had a dear friend of mine in my life who has traveled to like 51 different countries on his own and has done a ton of solo travel. And yeah. he's always told me like solo travel is incredible. Like solo travel is like an amazing experience. And so even when I called him, I said, Hey, I'm doing this trip. Aren't you so excited? So where are you going? I said, Kenny Africa. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm a veteran <laughs> solo, solo travel and I have never even been to Kenya. Like it's fine. It's fine. So I packed my bags, got myself together and he took me to the airport and I remember walking into the airport and starting to go, this is when like friends could still be around like the area where you walk down the aisle area. And it just hit me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this backpack on. What am I doing? And I turned around, I was crying. Like, listen, I can't do this. I can't go. I'm so scared to death. What was I thinking? Like, this was ridiculous. I'm just not going to go. He said, listen, you talked a big game for the last week that you wanted to go to Kenny. You wanted to put your big girl pants on put your big girl pants on and keep walking. He's like, you're not leaving this airport. He's like, get on that plane and do what you have to do. And like, okay, I was so scared. Then I got on the plane and people were like, where are you going? And what safari group are you with? I'm like, no, it's just me. <laughs> I saw their faces back, Jordan. I was, you know, probably when you said you were running a marathon in a week, when you see people's faces back to you, like, are you crazy? I'm like, what am I doing? I had a similar experience when I was going down to Brazil and I bought my plane ticket like the day before and I had no hotel. And I was booking yeah. it like on the way there. And then on the flight down there, like Brazilians apparently are really talkative. And they're <laughs> I talked to like, I remember this, like three people. I said, Oh, where are you staying at in Rio? And I told him like, you know, the central business district and every single person who I said, they're like, why are you staying there? Like it's dangerous <laughs> in that part. I was like, uh Oh, I guess apparently I'll figure this out on the way there. You know, but also like when I went to Thailand, um, when I lived in, I lived in China and I flew down to Thailand and I was on the, bank, on the way to Bangkok and I had no hotel and I was like, oh, I'll figure it out when I get down there yeah. or just like couch surf three times. And I just realized like so much of this, like, um, 
Actually, never mind. I just realized I'm crazy and I should probably have some more planning. No, it really, <laughs> what you're touching on really is that our limitations often in life are our own mental space. Like so, we limit ourselves yep. so much by our own misconceptions and fears when if we just kind of let loose, you think about how kids are, right? They like run into walls, they jump off things, they do things that as adults, we're like, are they crazy? But it's because they don't have though all those things that develop over time just to kind of be free and think about what is possible if we don't limit ourselves. God, you know, it, it, this is the first time I've actually started to think about this. And what you're saying is making me think about when you do the first big thing that others would perceive as being crazy or yeah. you can't achieve it, and maybe even you yourself, you don't know that you can do it because you don't have the data points, but then you yeah. do it and then future endeavors, the, the realm of possibility is expanded, not just linearly, but also horizontally. Well, if I can do this thing mm-hmm. and this, well, what else can I do? Well, maybe starting a business isn't that crazy. Exactly. Well, maybe doing, you know, uh, an Ironman or a half Ironman or another marathon, maybe that's not that crazy. And so it actually kind of reminds me back to, so, so a year and a half ago when I did that first marathon with nine days prep and like never having done a half marathon, a 5k, 10k or whatever, then last year I did a marathon in October and I didn't hit my time. I was like, screw that. I'm going to do another one in November. <laughs> but, but if I said, okay, I'll do two marathons back to back the year before that wouldn't have happened because I didn't yeah. have, I didn't have it. I hadn't achieved the realm of possibility mm-hmm. and tested my own limits. But it's interesting. It goes back to your story of like Kenya, like, yeah, why not? Yeah. And nobody, you- yeah. Nobody wanted me to do that trip. That one person who pushed, took me to the airport and, you know, left me crying on the jet bridge pretty much was the only person that said you are doing this. Like I didn't have anyone else that was saying like, this was a good idea, but coming out of that, I felt like anything was possible what after you, that. What trip. did you think about in your first marathon? Uh, have you done half marathons or marathons? Or- I did. Um, I did full and half marathons as well. And I'm an active soccer and, and um, boxer actually at one point as well. So I've an athlete all around. What, um, what got you through kind of the, the first marathon? Um, I think the biggest thing is, is that I'm not a quitter, even no matter how much I'm going to be tortured by whatever it is that I probably maybe should quit. Um, and I remember in those final like miles, just thinking like, I can't possibly move forward. Not because frankly, cardiovascularly, I couldn't do it or mentally I couldn't do it. My body felt like it turned into like one giant brick. I don't know if you had that same experience. Oh, 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 yeah. My body literally felt like just a big giant piece of like rock. Like I felt like my legs just couldn't even take another step. And then I thought about so often people have said like so much of what you're doing is mental, just keep pushing forward. And I thought about other experiences in my life where I thought like, this is just not, you know, like the Kenya trip could probably be a whole nother vlog. Cause that was not what was planned, but came out. Okay. 
But, um, you know, if you're pushed to the limits in life, to your point, um, or being there for 9-11 and feeling, you know, like a little speck on the earth relative to what was happening uh, around me, you know, when you have these experiences in life that you are pressed to the limits or you're challenged mentally to think about where else you can go and what else you can do, I think then in different times, you can lever off that as well. So when I was doing the marathon and I felt like my body was one big brick, like I could get through so many other things, like just put one foot forward. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be, you know, nice, but you're going to get there. And then I just kept imagining. I said, don't look for the finish line. Look at where you've come from and literally take one step at a time. I think so often we think like, oh, I'm going to go do this amazing thing. And then it becomes overwhelming and you just get paralyzed versus just take one step at a time. And if you think about that very next step, a few more steps are going to turn into a mile, which will turn into two miles, which eventually, you know, you'll get to the finish line. You know, the, the discussion we're having makes it almost seem normal to do big things. And I'm just, I've been scratching my head recently and wondering, you know, what is it that holds people back from pursuing challenges as they go into their thirties, as they go into their forties, you know, it's okay. Nine to five business, maybe kids afterwards, but what's like, and then you do that for year after year, but what do you think it is that holds people back from pursuing truly challenging things physically and mentally. Like for you and I, it just seems like it's, it feels like yeah, it's no, normal. Like, yeah. yeah, of course I'm gonna do this big thing. That's yeah. ridiculous. It's funny you say that Jordan, cause the area that I grew up in, you know, if I was a person who just kind of accepted what was gonna happen, you know, I would have gotten married and had a couple kids and worked at some local, I might still be a bank teller, right? In that same town. I mean, most people in my town stay in that town and, and get married to somebody who has gone in like a neighboring school and have a very nice life, frankly, very simple and comfortable life and, and are enjoying that. And, and I don't take anything away from that at all. For me, um, I always just felt like there was so much more that I wanted to do and experience. And I think so often people sell their themselves short and think like, wow, this is kind of like the life that I'm in. So this is what I have to continue to do. And, and I think that's why as people get older, sometimes they say like, I don't even know who I am anymore. If you've heard people say that, or like, I don't even know what I'm doing, or there has to be more to what I'm doing. I think people really get lost in the daily regimen of what they're doing. And then they do something totally different and you just see their eyes open up and get so exciting. So, you know, what I try to do for personal friends of mine and people around me is what are your goals? What are your dreams? What do you want to do? And, you know, when they say like, oh, I want to go, you know, on a trip to, you know, the Poconos, I'm like, no bigger picture. Like if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? I mean, if you start to ask people those questions, sometimes they're so taken aback, they don't even know how to answer them because nobody they haven't even talked about it for so Never. long or they've Never. been focused on like other people's dreams, exactly. family, exactly. kids, etc., as opposed to, wait, I, I actually have, I have dreams. Yeah. Like I'm my own person. You know, I, I, a good friend of mine never drove a car in her life and she was turning 50 and I didn't even know that she never drove. I mean, 
we were in New York. So there was really no reason why I would know if she drove or not. And I said to her when she turned 50, like, what are you scared to death of? Like, if you could say you're scared to death of, I thought she was going to say like snakes or something. It's like, I'm scared to death to drive a car. And I've been driving since before I was even allowed to be driving. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Like, you're scared to death of driving a car. She's like, I've never driven a car. I don't want to drive. Like, I don't know any, I'm so scared to drive a car. So you know what she got for her 50th birthday? Driving lessons. That's I got her classes to a driving school. Oh my gosh. She was like, I'm going to kill you. I can't believe you got me driving <laughs> Like we're getting you out of your comfort zone. Jordan, if you could see the joy of her driving, she got her own car. She's zipping all around, right? Like people around her, like, I can't believe she's driving. She's never driven in her life. Like now she's driving. Now she has her own car. And she's like, I feel such freedom. I can go wherever I'm going. But if I didn't ask her that, and it wasn't like, Hey, what do you want for your birthday? It was, what are you scared most about? And I knew that she was like scared, but she wasn't going to like freak out when I gave her these driving lessons, but now she's driving. So it's so we, like, okay, so we have two things. Yeah. So one, which is, uh, what is the last thing that you did that like scared you aside from, mm -hmm. you know, leaving a GE and starting your own firm. <laughs> um, uh -huh. and the second question, let's dive into, you know, what are your goals that you're looking at that are non- or it could be business goals, um, but more broader goals. But let's start off with like swapping some stories on the things that scared us. <laughs> I would say the most recent like real time situation I have right now is I had a dog for 17 years that passed away many years ago. And it was really tough when he passed. I had him from six weeks old to seven, 17 years. So I haven't gotten a pet since then. And then we were building our firm. So that was like not time to have a pet. And I mapped out my goals like I do every year. And one of my goals for 2021, is I said, I feel like I'm ready to get a, another dog. Um, and I believe strongly in rescuing and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, getting dogs from shelters or pets from shelters. So I was like just actively reaching out to some shelters. But, you know, I thought this was going to be a longer term thing that was about to happen. And then one of the shelters called me back on a dog I was interested in. And she said, um, can I get some references for you? So I gave her some references and these people I've known for like 20 plus years. So apparently they gave me like such glaring references that she called me back. She said, we have hundreds of applicants for this puppy, but um, I'm going to give him her. I'm going to give her to you. Your references like couldn't stop talking about you. And I said, um, oh, okay, like, what is the time frame? Like, what are we talking? She's like, you have to go next Saturday and pick her up. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, a puppy so literally I got off the phone with her Jordan we were at the store I bought up like anything you could find like she this dog has like a whole house of things right now and I'm laughing because when I had my first dog when I got him Tucker I was a sophomore in college doing like the phone-a-thon the bank thing the this the that yeah, yeah. And, like I was so ill-prepared like I'm lucky he lived 17 years when I think about it I had like no toy I had a crate for him. This dog has like everything under the sun now. And I have, I'm like terrified to get her. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this. And she's only like five pounds. So what can she do? But I've gotten like anything under the moon. So that's been a recent thing that like scared me to death, like to get that call and say like, she's yours hey, she's next yours. week. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me so much. I'm like, I don't know how adoptive parents like get the call. Like, Hey, you're getting this kid. Like 
I'm sure they're like, yeah, we've wanted this forever, but now this kid is coming. Like, what am I doing? So it's a really <laughs> exciting time. I feel like uh, emotionally and mentally, I'm excited now to have another dog in my life. I think animals are just awesome things to, um, to love and care for. So um, more to come on Puppy 101. The next time we do a vlog, you're going to hear some crying and whining in the background. <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, that just that idea of like doing stuff that scares you is so important to just also, I think, growing as individuals and also the experimentation um, just makes us get out of our routine, get out of our yeah. ruts. Um, yeah. I remember, I, I don't know, I, I, I think it was like a year ago, year half ago. Um, I've done other things that scare me, but like this one thing is is sticking out where I was listening to this podcast episode, I think it was on James Altucher and he was talking about stand-up comedy. And, and then I woke up the next morning on a Wednesday and it was like six or 7 a.m. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do stand-up comedy tonight. And so <laughs> I went on Google and I was like, stand-up comedy in New York. And I found one and it was at this, place. I think it was like the laughing Buddha. And I started texting my friends and then one of them responded. He's like, you know, that place is kind of like somewhat legit. Right. I was like, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically had like that day to figure out a five minute routine. And it was wild. Just thinking through the whole day, like what the hell am I going to talk about? I'm just going to yeah. talk about, you know, like my life. And then the funny part of it is that, or one aspect of this that was interesting is like, I, I promised myself that I wouldn't tell people it was my first time because you uh -huh. get into the bar and all the comedians are kind of hanging out at the bar and they're like swapping notes. And you could tell the ones who've been there like for 10 years on the same track. Uh -huh. And yeah. then and it was so funny just to see them. And then I realized to myself, like, I have no clue what the hell <laughs> I'm doing. And, but then you get into like the subculture of comedy when you're going to a lot of these bars in New York and a lot of them are just the comedians going and they all go in different places together, practicing on each other, as opposed to like half of the audience being, you know, real audience members. It's mainly just other comedians wow. in the audience. Um, really they're not cool. listening to each other. They're just thinking about their own thing before they have to go to the next bar and then to the next bar. How did you do? Did you get claps? Um, yeah, I got a couple of like, like legit, legit laughs. I have it online. Um, I, I could okay. send it over. Um, like I got some legit ones and it was fun. It, it was, it was absolutely a blast. And then, wow. but I remember, and this goes back to the other point about expanding our limitations and our comfort zone. The next week I had a gap in between like my 4 p.m. meeting and when I was going to meet my wife Jing for dinner at like seven or eight I was like you know what I'm going to go do another stand-up in the next couple hours and oh so I God. googled it and then I ran down to uh, uh Union Union Park I don't know what it's called um but on 14th street okay, and I was like, Square. yeah Union Square Park and I was like oh there's a comedy club right on I'm just going to do go do a quick set <laughs> So but it was funny. interesting because like that perceived fear, like, and that risk became so much, uh, just be, was cut in half. And I was like, yeah. hey, before my dinner with Jing, but 
I'll just go do another set. Who cares? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and I completely, up. I completely bombed it, and it was uh, hilarious to myself. And like Jin came in later onto it, um, but I was just like, I, I was so afraid of that the week before. And what's the worst that's going to happen? Like a bunch of strangers aren't going to like your comedy. Who cares? Who cares? I record and it goes on YouTube, and then you know, it's in there. <laughs> and actually. Point? You bring up a point, Jordan, one simple thing that people can do is I try to every year just learn a new skill, mm. whatever that is, or do something different and master it and then try something else. So, um, you know, and it could be anything. It could be simple things that people want to do. I think anything that kind of gets you out of your comfort zone, but also gives you something like that you can really enjoy is so important. So whether it's a language or you know, something athletic or going somewhere or doing something different. Or, you know, I think I really encourage people to think like outside of the box and what's really important to them. And I try to do that with people around me too. I mean, I love my friends that are hard on me. You know, if you have a bunch of friends that just say how awesome you are, you're never going to grow, right? You need the people around you're like, you really messed up. Right? <laughs> so like, in college, oh, it was like, I think it was junior year of college and I was home that summer and my, my, my dad was, uh, is in the process of passing away from a brain tumor. And then early in, in that summer, my buddy and I just got done playing tennis. And then I had my shirt off on the way back, walking in the house. He's like, Hey dude, you know, you're getting kind of big. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you're getting kind of, okay. You're getting kind of fat dude. And then, so I was like, <laughs> I was like a buck 80 or buck 85. And I was like five foot uh-huh. six, five foot seven. And I'm not big bone. I was bigger than I should have been. I was like, cool, let's work out this summer. And so we worked out like, you know, two times a day, seven days a week, but it was his honesty to say, no, like you're, you are this and you should be that, or like just calling me out. And I think that was Mm -hmm. such a true testament to friendship. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, you can for that, right? You don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But you don't know, like you could, you could have had like health conditions happen or anything. Right. So he probably right, I, just had to, I just had to snooze my thing because I have to go get daycare in 15 minutes. Oh yeah, um, no problem. But, but um, you know, now look at your Iron Man. So oh, so this brings up another question. So uh uh so there. Um okay, so what we're uh talking about for our, our, our mutual Zoom uh technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> um what 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 um, so you're talking about exercise and comedy. What was and it? Testing, was our, testing our limits. We were testing saying our pushing limit. our limits beyond our fears. Um, oh my God. There's something I was just about to say. Oh, well, who cares? Um, we were talking about friends um, giving us honest feedback to push us forward. And your so, friends saying you're big. <laughs> yeah. well, okay. That's what, it, that's what it reminds me. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Oh, no, my friend, wife. Okay, so oh. when we when we met and like on our first date or something like that on Match.com, she's like, "Your profile said athletic." <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I was athletic in my mind, not necessarily <laughs> on my body. It's only taken me, I don't know, ten years. Oh um, my gosh! But uh, yeah, actually, so it. so here's another thing to continue to take my down myself down fifty notches. I was like, you know. Jane, you're like, I, I love working out. been doing this nine months and like five and six days a week. She's like, aren't you supposed to have abs by now? <laughs> <laughs> She's 
terrible. She's perfect. She you. is wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's something that it's, it, it, it's, she gets it from her parents. I remember back in March or so when I was taking him to JFK, it was like three or four in, in the morning and I'm driving to the airport and they're speaking, you know, Mandarin to me. And, you know, my Mandarin was diminished at that point. And they, they reminded me, you know, two times at three or 4 a.m. on the way back to me taking them to JFK, how bad my Chinese has gotten. I'm like, oh, am I going to hear this the whole damn way? Keep on bringing it. Um, oh, oh that was fun. So let's talk about your, uh, on the subject of dreams and goals, like what, what are, what are the big things that you're looking forward to in the next year slash couple of years? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I feel now that we finally got our firm to a place where we can go from um, really grinding and and pulling together uh, the vision that we wanted to create for ourselves and for our investors and for our employees to really now thinking about fun too and beyond and adjacent strategies and where do we go from here. So uh, I'm really excited from a business perspective to take our company to the next level. I'm excited to continue to grow our team and see our team members continue to grow in their own careers and their own personal development. Uh, that all really excites me about our business. I'm, I'm excited to, um, you know, get some great exits for our investors and, and um, you know, prove our thesis out and, and still support um, great healthcare companies. Um, so all of that professionally gets me really excited. I think, um, you know, now I'm in a place too where, um, you know, you and I can be having this chat and I can really um, hopefully open up people to other possibilities that they might not even think were, were available for themselves in their lives. And from doing this with you, I've gotten so much positive feedback from people I haven't talked to in a long time, just, um, really feeling great about um, understanding where I came and where I am. And so that's really exciting to me. But I really want to give back to others in the industry and really just inspire people the way that Jerry inspired me and give them promise and hope that things that maybe they weren't possible are now possible. So um, for me personally, I'm really excited to expand um, what I'm doing and continue to grow that and also give the nuggets to other people to then also pay it forward. Mm. So not just for me to be an advocate for people who are trying to be an entrepreneur, but there's a lot of people that are in their current roles who are maybe thinking about, you know, how do I have those discussions around carried interest? How do I have those discussions around getting a piece of the management company? How do I make sure that I'm getting valued for my, for what I'm doing for the firm? You know, am I getting paid you know, correctly. I get those calls all the time from people. Like, how do I negotiate my employment agreement? And so I, I think there's so much that is left unsaid that people don't really know where to go. And so any way in which I can help others, whether it's through a broader public forum or one-off, um, that I really love. Um, so those are some, some goals and initiatives. And then I have a lot of other um, things that I get really excited about. And then um, for me personally and physically, you know, I'm coming off of a, a knee surgery. And so um, really getting back to, um, you know, soccer and some of the other sports that I, I had to take a time off from is, is really great too. We just knocked off what a knocked out a six mile run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was, that, uh, was your first my, kind of like your first run, uh, after knee surgery. That was my longest run since the surgery. And that was just like on a whim, as we talked about after you and I had chatted, but now it's really, uh, 
it's really gotten me the confidence that now my knee can, you know, sustain longer runs. And I'm really excited about that. And uh, hopefully by the time summer comes, I can be back on the soccer field as well. That is awesome. Yeah. Is there a, is there a, oh, no, I didn't ask this. What do you think about MBAs? Sorry, completely random, but it did make me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were talking about earlier. So what, so, are, what are your thoughts on MBAs in our industry? So um, you've just heard my story about how I came up in my career, you know, very often in my, so the natural fit for me to get my MBA would have been, uh, you know, when I graduated undergrad, go work for a little while and then go back and get my MBA. I think because I was given the opportunity and was uh, successful in that credit training program I mentioned to you, you know, I got, um, I guess, dumped in the industry or put in the industry and, and excelled in the industry at a much younger age than most people get. Um, from my perspective back then, I felt like if I was going to go back for my MBA, it would either be for contacts in the industry and expand my network or for continued knowledge or to expand my knowledge set. And every time I took a step back and said, is now the time, should I do this? Um, my Rolodex was significant from a very young age working in that private equity group. And then my knowledge base was also significant because I was underwriting companies since I was like a sophomore in undergrad. So I never felt like my network was lacking or my knowledge base was lacking enough to justify taking time off of my career trajectory and also incurring significant amount of debt to do so. And so um, I just made a decision through that time, like this is not, I'm just gonna keep going. And for me, kind of on the job training was so valuable doing deals, was teaching me so much. Uh, and at GE, they had an incredible leadership training program. So I was getting a lot of that kind of softer element of, of leadership training and managerial training uh, at GE. So I never um, felt lacking to not have my MBA. Um, and so I don't still have it today. And what's really interesting is when we think about hiring people or looking at job descriptions, which is one other area you touched on, or thinking about writing kind of who you want to hire, I would say that if I wrote a job description today, the way that I was trained to write a job description, like I wouldn't even get the job. And so, um, you know, I always think about that to say, you know, there's a, something to be said about somebody who maybe doesn't have everything perfect on paper, but has a whole lot of other things that are hard to touch on. Um, and so for me, when I go back and ask people, you know, why did you give me this opportunity or why did you do this? And, and curious about why things happened in my life. You know, people always said that they feel like I'm very genuine. They feel like they can trust me. They feel like I'll ask if I don't know. Um, and I have incredibly strong work ethic. And so when I think about some of, and I'm incredibly tenacious. So I, when I think about some of those personality traits, um, you know, some of those things may or may not be the case for people who have a more untraditional path. So I try to always be open to whatever experiences people have had and see if that's a good fit or not. Um, Cause I would never want to exclude myself through our own search. <laughs> Well, yeah. we have covered, covered a ton of ground, everything yeah, from marathon really comedy to you growing up <laughs> to starting the firm. Um, starting we went back the like almost close to birth. 
And Jordan, I have to say, um, I, even though we've recently just gotten to know each other, I feel like I've known you for about 20 years. Um, I feel so fortunate to the folks over at PEWIN and other organizations that you have been doing work with for, for a long time. And, and I feel really fortunate that they've connected me to you and your broader team. Um, you've been an absolute pleasure to get to know personally and professionally. And um, as I told you in the beginning, I have never done social media. I've never done a vlog. And um, now it's an ongoing joke about doing vlogs. So um, thank you for bringing me to prime time. <laughs>